Salutations, and may God grant all of you listeners health and longevity. My name is Henok Elias, or in English, Enoch Elijah, and I'm a Sunday school teacher and choir member of the Virgin Mary's Ethiopian Orthodox Church in Los Angeles, California. The pleasantly unusual way in which I greeted you is my translation of a greeting I often use when speaking my native tongue of Amharic. I am a lover of languages, economics, history, and consensual systems of governance. I want to express my heartfelt and also mindfelt, because I am a Semite, gratitude toward Father Mark and Dr. Richard. I'm no stranger to the Holy Scriptures, but you two have made me feel like one in the best way possible, the scriptural way. That is the way in which our Father Abraham treated strangers. You have introduced me to Father Paul Nadim Tarazi and fed me the word of God through the miraculous digital world. Ezekiel 16 and Zephaniah 2-3 are now my favorite passages in the Holy Books. I've heard all of your podcasts. I'm almost done with Father Tarazi's audio series on Ezekiel. This is my first time with Ezekiel. I have two or three more minor prophets to read until I complete the Book of the Twelve, and I have begun Father Tarazi's books on Galatians and his introduction to the prophetic traditions. I have implemented your strategy of exegeting the Holy Writings, regardless of a lack of expertise, personally and corporately, with my high school and college-age students and by myself. You can follow my exegesis at servetheway.blogspot.com. Many years to you, my brethren and fellow laborers in Christ Jesus. Many years. Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. The Book of Lamentations offers a series of poetic reflections on the destruction of Jerusalem. Abandoned by God, hungry, homeless, and bereft of hope, once a queen among the provinces, Jerusalem had become a slave. Ridiculed by enemies, cast aside by lovers, and betrayed by elders and priests, the city of sacred stones had itself become unclean. Despite this misery, Jerusalem continued to place her hope in the Lord, knowing, in chapter 5, that his utter rejection of her may be forever. Where's the hope in that? You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 38 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Today we wanted to talk about the Lamentations, an interesting text, not often preached on in churches, but it says a lot about scripture's hope for humanity, hope for the addressees of the story. I mean, we think typically about the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile as being something in history that affected the Jewish people, but that's not what's going on here in Lamentations, is it? No, I mean, it really makes a clear appeal in verse 12 to the reader. Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by, behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow which is done unto me wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger? The question is raised with the reader, is there anyone who's been through what I've been through? Now, on the one hand, this sounds like Jerusalem is speaking as the ultimate victim. On the other hand, that might not be a problem here because we are supposed to be hearing this 
as the reader and understanding what Jerusalem has gone through. And then the book of Lamentations beautifully gives a summary of what the prophets had been warning and promising all this time about what the results of going with the other nations are, looking for help and others besides their husband, the Lord. When we look at that Jerusalem that's been destroyed, when we look at those rocks, we're not just supposed to see rocks, but our own future and our own destiny. The Lamentations, in a very explicit way, a poetic way, puts the addressee of the text in the position of the remnant that's always left after, typically in scripture, after the destruction. And the remnant is always there, obviously, as a sign of mercy and hope for the future. But the remnant is there so that there's someone to be reminded that a certain type of behavior has a certain trajectory and outcome. It presents that outcome so that you could consider the possibility of changing your ways in the present. It's almost like the epilogue of a disaster movie. Okay, so now the asteroid has hit the Earth and everything's blown up, or the bombs have gone off. The movie The Day After shows what happens when there's been a nuclear holocaust. All the bombs have gone off, all the main characters die, and then after that the screen goes black, and then there's a message about disarmament. This is how it functions. You're supposed to see and feel the destruction and the horror, the potential horror that your behaviors, the behaviors of your community could lead to. I called for my lovers, but they deceived me. So this harkens back to what we saw in Hosea chapter one and also in Ezekiel. The lovers are the ones that Jerusalem looks to in order to provide for her and to protect her. So those are the other gods. Those are the other armies, but they deceived her. How did they deceive her? They didn't actually protect her. Now in Hosea, and in Ezekiel, the Lord told them, they're not going to protect you. So the narrator here is a witness to the warning that the Lord has already given. My priests and mine elders gave up the ghost in the city. So the priests, the old people died in Jerusalem because of the betrayal of these lovers while they sought their meat to relieve their souls. Their soul, it also can be translated as their appetite. So they were looking to provide for themselves. They were looking for meat, the elders and the priests and the elders and the priests are supposed to be the holders of wisdom and the teaching, but because they betrayed wisdom and the teaching and went after other providers, they were searching for food and provision from other sources, they died in the city. And this is the warning that the city is going to be destroyed. And then there's a plea to the Lord, behold, O Lord, for I am in distress. My bowels are troubled. My heart is turned within me, for I have grievously rebelled. Abroad the sword bereaveth at home there is as death. So there's no place for her to go. There's no place for her to escape. She's in distress and she has to call out to the Lord. Now, we saw, and if you look in Hosea 6, and I mentioned this when I was working with the OCF students, that the Lord knows what happens when the people repent. They turn back the other way and they apostatize again. That's the beauty in Hebrew, where to repent is the word shuv, which means to turn. But the word for apostatize is also shuv, to turn. You either turn towards the Lord or turn away. And here the, the narrator is saying, I'm repenting, I'm going to turn to you. But we know from Hosea 6 that as soon as they turn to the Lord, they're going to turn away again. If you are part of the remnant of the destruction that has taken place, and you're thinking, when I've been in trouble in the past, when I've gone astray in the past, I could make an offering in the temple. And by making an offering in Jerusalem itself, I could atone for my mistakes, my sins, and go from an unclean status to a clean status. When you get to verse 8 and it says Jerusalem has sinned greatly 
and Jerusalem itself has become an unclean thing. It's shocking. It's not just that it's terrible that the city was destroyed. It's not just that it's shocking that God would destroy it himself. But then to go beyond that and to say something even more, to say that Jerusalem itself is not clean, it's like pushing the hopelessness past the envelope of hopelessness. What do you do? God has forsaken you. You don't even have your liturgy or your rituals. Or priests or old people. There's to nothing you can them. do. There's no rite. There's no circumcision. There's no sackcloth and ashes. There's nothing. You are out. You're down for the count. Then we as the readers are supposed to look at this and really experience it. That's what I think is so beautiful about this poetry. The sights and the sounds and the feelings, the emotions. It's really trying to push the misery. Previously, you've talked about the destruction of the city and judgment as hope. This is really where we see this anchored because the hope is, okay, now you've really seen and really experienced as best as you can what it means for Jerusalem to be destroyed. The heart of the world, the seat of God himself. It's the hope that comes from this judgment. That's why at chapter five, I mean, it's explicit. I love this ending. It's like, you know, people talk about Ecclesiastes and they make this claim that because Ecclesiastes is outlining the futility of man's ways upon the earth, secular philosophers get very excited about it because they say, oh, look how impressive the Bible is. It's saying that life has no meaning. But that's not what Ecclesiastes is saying, because at the end of the book, you have suddenly God's judgment giving meaning in the midst of the futility of man's action upon the earth. Now, people who want to say that everything is vain and nothing has a purpose and it doesn't matter, usually try to make the claim that the judgment that comes at the end is an insertion. But you have the same thing going on in chapter five of Lamentations. It goes on and on and on and on about how we've been judged, how terrible it is, how miserable our situation is, then suddenly you hear, you, O Lord, rule forever. Your throne is from generation to generation. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us so long? Restore us to you, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are exceedingly angry with us. In other words, the one who is lamenting and crying out is saying, the one who slapped me, is also the one who has the power to give me life. And so therefore, my only hope is the judgment of the one who struck me down. And it doesn't say he'll Powerful. Do it. Right. And it doesn't say he will. He says, unless you have utterly rejected us and are exceedingly angry with us. So maybe the Lord won't restore you. And reading this again, Father, it just reminds me so much of Habakkuk chapter one, when he's complaining about the destruction, how long. And Habakkuk differs from this book because the Lord actually responds. We've talked about Habakkuk before, and I talk about it on the blog. There's a lot that can be gleaned there, but there's a parallel here with Habakkuk. Now, one thing that I see when we read Lamentations is how counterintuitive it is. As we're reading it, it seems like, okay, this seems to follow naturally from reading the prophets. But in the common way that we live our lives, when we saw in the 90s the fall of Moscow, the fall from great empire to a destroyed city full of crime, poverty, hyperinflation, lack of goods, did we enter into that pain of Moscow in order to understand how horrible the judgment is upon them? No. We said, now we know capitalism is better. Now we knew they're as bad as we thought. 
we always knew we were better than them. It finally just took some time. Or after 9-11, they just hate us because we're free and we're so much better than them. And our women don't wear head coverings. I mean, it's the same mechanism. It's an unrepentant response to destruction that betrays not just a lack of empathy with your enemies, but a lack of empathy with those who have actually suffered. Because the people that were saying these things after 9-11 were not in the Twin Towers when the destruction took place. You know, just like we still obviously don't understand what Russia went through, and that lack of empathy over time has led to a whole new set of problems in our relationship with them. Right. And Scripture is always forcing you to be empathetic with those who suffer, not just those who suffer, but who suffer because of your choices. And it's putting you in the position of suffering using the magic of literature, which can transport you anywhere at any time. Exactly. So many people understand suffering this way that if you're suffering and I'm not, it means that I'm better than you. This is the problem that Job had with his friends. Occasionally you'll have a person who will say, that person is suffering and identify with their suffering, so I'm gonna do what I can to help that person. This, however, goes against both because there's no human being that can bring Jerusalem out of their suffering. The suffering is utter and complete. All we can do as the onlooker is change our own way of living. There's no way. This is like seeing a homeless person on the street and my better side would say, what can I do to help this person so they don't suffer for being a homeless person? Whereas this is saying, look at that suffering. What can you learn from this suffering? How are you going to become a better person? How are you going to turn to the Lord to be completely dependent on the Lord after having witnessed the destruction of this person? It's funny, people talk about visions and dreams, you know, and then they imagine that they have these experiences. Scripture in this particular setting is presenting you with a narrative vision, but I wouldn't call it a vision or a dream in the popular sense, which tends to have a positive connotation, like the heavens are open to you and you see light and all this nonsense. No, it's presenting you with a vision that is a nightmare. It's putting you into the nightmare so that when you wake up, you have to remind yourself a few times for the first 15 minutes of the day that what happened in your nightmare didn't really happen. But now what? Because the whole function of a nightmare, as we learn from modern science and study of the brain, is to help your mind explore scenarios so that you can avoid them. I mean, that's what scripture's doing. It's, it's very clear. Everything is in the hand of God. We have only to turn ourselves over to his judgment. The scriptural teaching is offering you wisdom, not guarantees. It's offering you wisdom. If you walk according to this wisdom, there is a possibility that God, who is providence, can present you with the alternate path in which things turn out better for Jerusalem. There is an acceptance at the end when the text says, look, I don't know if God's going to turn from his anger, but I'm going to embrace his judgment. It's acknowledging that there's no control over outcome. Just because I change my behavior guarantees me nothing. It's like and this is what Paul is saying. I mean, the only thing you are guaranteed by following the wisdom of Scripture is the opportunity to have a meaningful death as opposed to a selfish one. That's like the three youths. The Lord can save us, but if he doesn't, we still won't turn to you. Because at the end of the day, if there was a historical conflict in which there was a Jerusalem that was destroyed, it was destroyed because there was a conflict. Who knows why it was destroyed? The prophet is telling you it's because you didn't follow God's instruction. But we know people never follow God's instruction. 
So maybe Jerusalem would have been destroyed anyway, just like cities are destroyed by tsunamis or by conflicts. I mean, these things take on a life of their own. Who knows what influence there is on events in human history? That's not the point. The point is, whatever has happened to you, the good or the bad, what are you going to make of it for the sake of the gospel? And if you make out of it something that bears witness to God's wisdom, then the destruction of Jerusalem ceases to be punishment and becomes martyria, it becomes witness. Right. It's significant that in this passage, while it says that the instrument of the destruction were the enemies of Jerusalem, the agent, the one who carried it out, was the Lord. It was the Lord who was the enemy. It was the Lord's bow. Right. It was the Lord's it's sword. Yeah. It's classic. But this is the key. This is why in the New Testament, when Jesus refers to himself as the temple, and then the temple of Jerusalem is destroyed, you know, metaphorically in the crucifixion of Jesus, it's not the same as the destruction of Jerusalem in Lamentations because Jesus submitted to God's instruction. Neither Father Mark nor I have done a lot of study on Lamentations. We've done some reading, but because of our training in especially the prophetic books and prophetic language, we're able to quickly unpack the meaning that it's trying to convey and the way that it in its own way is trying to express these ideas. So as a further appeal to listeners, keep reading scripture, keep reading the prophets, because this prophetic language and prophetic images appear throughout scripture. And so when you read one part and you know it very well, then when you read new parts, then you can start to understand those better and more quickly. So oftentimes people will ask me, what's a good place to start reading scripture? Read anywhere, I don't care. But when you know more scripture, then as you read newer things and unfamiliar things, there will already be a hint of familiarity there. The more you read, the more you read, the more you read, the more scripture begins to get under your skin and into your bloodstream. And what happens over time is that you develop an instinct and intuition you know the mentality of the text and you know what it's going to say in the next verse even if you've never picked up that text before in your life there are patterns there is a mentality a structure now you can't allow yourself because you gain this familiarity to make assumptions about what you're reading because scripture always makes sudden moves in directions that you wouldn't consider each book has its own unique way of handling these concepts that's very explicit in the four gospels where different stories are told different ways for different reasons over and over again but still there is a mentality that you pick up that allows you to hear any text and to immediately begin to absorb what it's saying it's about practice Thanks very much. It was a great conversation this week. Thank you very much, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening.